You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading in Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, translated by Elizabeth Marshall, 12 lectures. This is Lecture 3, entitled Cultural Phenomena, given in Dornoch on the 1st of July, 1923. Today's lecture is intended as a special episode in the series I've been giving, because it's important that anthroposophists are well and truly awake and can form their own opinion by observing the world in a certain way. Therefore, in between those lectures concerned with anthroposophic material, it's essential that we occasionally include one dealing with the state of our civilization and what is going on in the wider world. So today I want to expand on something I already described in an article entitled The Gertianum, where I spoke about a newly published text Quote, the Decline and Restoration of Civilization, close quote, by Albert Schweitzer. It's presented as the first part of a philosophy of civilization and deals basically with a critique of contemporary culture. I'd like to start with a single but very typical example of this contemporary culture in order to provide a solid basis for what Albert Schweitzer is describing. There are thousands to choose from. You only need to take something at random from modern cultural life, you could say cultural death, and you will find enough examples. As I mentioned in the educational lectures yesterday and today, it's really a question of getting used to observing such things honestly and directly. So as an illustration, I've chosen something which is always a good representation of contemporary culture. The inaugural speech of the rector of a Berlin university held on the 15th of October, 1910. This rector is a physician, a person not beholden to any particular philosophical view of culture, who wanted to give a kind of overview of modern scientific thinking. Now, I don't want to bother with the first part of the speech, which is mainly about the university, but to acquaint you with the general worldview that this Dr. Rubner presented at the inaugural ceremony. This example is perhaps typical, as it comes from the year 1910, when all of Europe and beyond believed optimistically enough that there was an enormous intellectual boom, a flood of intellectual achievements. What I want to pick up on is a kind of aside to the students, which allows us to gain insight into just what such a representative of his time was concerned with in his soul. First he speaks to the students as follows, We all have to learn. We bring nothing into the world but an instrument for intellectual activity, a blank page, our brain, with various talents and different potentials for development. We receive everything from the world around us. Obviously, if someone grows up in this modern materialistic culture, they can hold this view. We shouldn't be mean-spirited. We have to be clear what power this materialistic culture exercises on contemporary people, and we can understand why someone would speak about coming into the world with the brain as a blank page and receiving everything from the world environment. 
But let's listen to the rest of what he has to say to the students. He continues the argument that we are all blank pages and how the children of even the most distinguished mathematician still has to learn their times table because, unfortunately, they don't inherit mathematics from their father. Then, how the child of the greatest linguist still has to learn their native language, and so on. No brain wants to have to comprehend all that their ancestors have experienced and learned, but here he advises those very brains, consisting of blank pages, on what they have to do in the world, to become inscribed. He continues, quote, What millions of brains in the course of human history have pondered and developed, all that our intellectual heroes have created, Close quote, and so on. This goes on for two whole pages. He wants to impress it on them. They come with a brain as a blank page, and they have to strive to absorb all that these intellectual heroes have created. But if these intellectual heroes were all blank pages, where has all that they created, which the new blank pages are supposed to absorb, come from? What a strange way of thinking. These blank page brains, he goes on, quote, receive in the form of short sentences during their education what our intellectual heroes have created, and from this they can develop their own character and their individual life, close quote. Next, he presents these blank page brains with a remarkable sentence, quote, what you've learned gives you the raw material for productive thinking, close quote. So, suddenly, productive thinking appears in the unwritten pages of these brains. It should be self-evident for someone who contends that brains are unwritten pages that they can't simultaneously expect productive thinking. This is the kind of sentence which shows just how materialistically even the best minds thought. Rubner isn't one of the worst. He's a doctor and has even read the philosopher Zeller and that's quite something. He's not at all small-minded, you see. But how does he think? He wants to depict the freshness of life, and so he says, quote, it's always very refreshing to start work on a new unplowed field of the brain, close quote. So, when the student has learned something, and then later goes on to another subject, this means that they're plowing a new field in the brain. You see, the thought forms have a typical materialistic tone. He goes on, quote, Some brain fields only yield up their fruits when they've been worked repeatedly, but then their yield is as good as other fields which don't have to be worked so hard. Close quote. It's very difficult to follow this thinking because, first, the brain is supposed to be a blank page, but then it has to learn everything from brains with inscribed pages, who, however, must themselves have been blank at birth. Now, this brain has to be plowed, but there would at least have to be a plowman present. The more we try to follow this incredible, impossible thinking, the more bewildered we become. However, Max Rubner is concerned about his students, and so he advises them to plow their brains thoroughly. Now, he can't help but say that thinking is what plows the brain, so he has to recommend thinking. But now his materialistic thought really goes to town and he finds the lovely sentence, quote, thinking strengthens the brain, training enhances its performance, just as it does any organ, just as our muscle strength is enhanced through work and sport, studying 
is brain sport, close quote. So, now, the Berlin students of 1910 knew what thinking is. Quote, thinking is brain sport, close quote. However, it doesn't even occur to this representative of contemporary culture what is really interesting about sport, much more interesting than what goes on on the outside. It's much more interesting to look at what actually goes on in people's limbs when they do different sports, what's going on on the inside then we'd find something really interesting. If we looked at sport in this way, we would discover that sport is one of those activities belonging to the metabolic limb aspect of human organization. Thinking belongs to the nerve sense organization. There, everything is turned on its head. What in the human being is turned toward the inside, the inner processes, are, in thinking, turned toward the outside. And what goes outward in sport goes inward in thinking. This means when we consider thinking, we have to allow for this. But this representative of contemporary culture has forgotten how to think, and so he can't think any thought through to the end. Our whole modern culture has emerged from this unfinished, unresolved type of thinking. We can capture the essence of this thinking in such representatives of modern culture. We catch it there, so to speak, red-handed. Unfortunately, it's rare for someone to notice this. When the rector of a Berlin university gives an inaugural speech entitled, quote, Our Goals for the Future, close quote, it's a solemn moment for a truly modern person. It's what science says. It's what the invincible authority of science, which knows everything, says. And if science has proven that thinking is brain sport, then we have to just accept that. Then humans have become clever enough after all these centuries to realize that thinking is brain sport. I could go on with these observations and look at the most diverse fields, and we would see that everywhere the same, I can't say spirit, the same non-spirit rules. Now, some people with a deeper insight had seen this before the decadence was externally visible, and we have, as an example, Albert Schweitzer, who wrote the excellent book titled The Quest of the Historical Jesus from Rimaris to Vreda, which in its keen, thoughtful, thorough, and profound thinking could at least get as far as the Apocalypse in its research on the life of Jesus. We could rely on Schweitzer to have a clear view of the decadence of contemporary culture. Now he assures us that his book, titled The Decay and Restoration of Civilization, wasn't written after the war, but that the first draft was ready in 1900, and the final version was written in 1914 to 1917. Now it's been published. And here is someone looking at the decline of modern civilization with their eyes open. It's always interesting to see how such an observer of cultural decline works with sharp tools on our civilization. Indeed, some of his sentences about modern culture do seem as cutting as knives. Let's have a look at a few of these. This is the first sentence in the book. Quote, We stand at the brink of the fall of civilization. The war is not the cause of this situation. The war is itself one of the signs. What was already a spiritual reality has now become fact, which in turn affects the spiritual undoubtedly for the worse. 
we abandoned civilization because we had no way of thinking about it. Thus we crossed the threshold of the century with unchallenged illusions about ourselves. Now it's obvious to everyone that our culture is in the process of destroying itself. Close quote, Steiner again. Although he does tend to praise himself for it, still Albert Schweitzer sees that the decline of civilization began in the middle of the 19th century, which I have often described as an important moment to look at if we want to clearly understand the present. Schweitzer says about this time, quote, Around the middle of the 19th century, the discussions of ethical ideals, reason, and reality had subsided, and in the course of the next few decades they practically disappeared. The abdication of civilization went ahead without a fight, without a whimper. Culture's thinking lagged behind the times, as if it were too exhausted to keep pace. Close quote, Steiner again. And he has another somewhat surprising argument, which we can, however, understand quite well, having often talked about it here, albeit in a deeper sense than is meant by Schweitzer. For him it's clear that in earlier times there was a complete worldview. All the phenomena of life, from the mineral down below up to the highest human ideals, were all part of a life totality. The divine spiritual being was at work in this life totality. If you wanted to know how natural laws functioned, then you turned to the divine spiritual being. If you wanted to know how moral laws or religious laws functioned, then you turned to the divine spiritual being. There existed a total worldview, where morality was as anchored in objectivity as natural laws are anchored in objectivity. The last world philosophy to emerge, which still had something of this total worldview, was the Enlightenment, which wanted to derive everything from reason, but still made an inner connection between morality and the natural world. Consider how often I've said this here. If today someone believes honestly in natural laws, then they have to believe in a world beginning, similar to that described by the Kant-Laplace theory, and in the end of the world as it would be in a heat death. Then we have to imagine that all ethical ideals are boiled out of the chaos of cosmic nebula, which then slowly mass together and become crystals and organisms and ultimately human beings. Then ethical ideals start to flow out of these humans. But these ethical ideals are only illusions, born out of the swirling atoms of the human being, and they will disappear when the earth disappears into the heat death. This means that a philosophy develops which only relates to nature and in which there is no anchorage for moral ideals. And it's only because modern humans are so dishonest and unable to admit this that they deny the facts and still believe that moral ideals have some kind of anchorage. But whoever believes in modern science and is honest with themselves can't believe in the eternalness of moral ideals. If someone does so, nevertheless, then this is craven dishonesty. We have to look at our present time with no illusions. Albert Schweitzer sees this too in his own way, and he looks for the reasons behind it. He says, quote, The failure of philosophy was crucial. Close quote. Now we can all have our own ideas about this, 
and you could think that philosophers were like the hermits of the world and the rest of humanity has nothing to do with them. But Schweitzer rightly says in another passage in his text, quote, Kant and Hegel have ruled over millions of people who have never read them and didn't even know they were following them, close quote. The paths that world thoughts take are not as we imagine them to be. I myself am a witness to the fact that until the end of the 19th century, Hegel's most important works stood on the library shelves and the pages weren't even cut open. Nobody was studying them. But those copies that a few people read exerted an enormous influence on contemporary cultural life. And there's hardly anybody here today whose thinking hasn't been influenced by Kant and Hegel. As I said, these paths are mysterious. And if in the most remote mountain village people are at least reading newspapers, then they're also ruled by Kant and Hegel. So it's not just true of the present illustrious and learned audience sitting in this room. Thus we can say with Albert Schweitzer, quote, The failure of philosophy was crucial. In the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, philosophy was the leader of public opinion. Philosophy was concerned with the condition of humanity and the questions of the time and encouraged people to think about these things. So, at that time, there was an elementary philosophical debate about humanity, society, and culture, which naturally produced a popular philosophy that dominated public opinion and cultural interests. Close quote, Steiner. And now Schweitzer argues, quote, It wasn't clear to philosophy that the impulse behind the cultural ideas it was meant to promote was slowly becoming irrelevant. At the end of one of the most distinguished works on the history of philosophy, published at the end of the 19th century, close quote, Steiner again, the same work that I've also criticized in a public lecture, continue, quote, This is defined as the process with which we, and now he quotes this historian of philosophy, quote, with ever clearer certainty reflect on those cultural values whose universal validity is the subject of philosophy itself. Close subquote, close quote. Steiner again. Now Schweitzer says to this, quote, The author forgot, however, the most important point, that in earlier times philosophy didn't just commemorate cultural values, but promoted them as active ideas in public thinking. Whereas from the second half of the 19th century onward, philosophy became more and more a guarded and unproductive asset. Close quote. Steiner again. Nobody had noticed where human thinking had ended up. Read some of the reflections that appeared at the turn of the century. Anything done differently, as for example was done in my book, later titled Riddles of Philosophy, was seen as unhistorical. And because at the time the book was titled World and Life Conceptions in the Nineteenth Century, a philosopher criticized it on the grounds that there was no mention of Bismarck. There were other similar criticisms of the book, made precisely because it tried to crystallize out of the past those factors that would be active in the future. And what did these observers usually do? They remembered. They commemorated culture as it was. They no longer had any idea of the fact that culture had existed much earlier on. 
However, now Albert Schweitzer seems to give up on the future of philosophy. He says it's not really the fault of philosophy that it doesn't play a productive role in modern thinking. This is just the fate of philosophy. The world in general has forgotten how to think, and philosophy has forgotten it too. In a certain sense, Schweitzer is even quite forgiving, because he could think, even if all the world has forgotten how to think, at least the philosophers could have gone on cultivating it. But Schweitzer thinks it's quite natural that the philosophers have, with everybody else, forgotten how to think. So he says, quote, The fact that thinking hasn't been able to establish an optimistic, ethical worldview and to ground in it those ideals which make up our culture is not due to philosophy, but is just the result of the way thinking has developed. Close quote. This was the case in general. Quote, but philosophy did wrong the world by not admitting to this fact and persisting in the illusion that it was promoting cultural progress. Close quote. Thus, Albert Schweitzer says in razor-sharp criticism that the philosophers have forgotten how to think along with the rest of the world. But it's not really their fault, it's just a fact. However, the real fault lies in the fact that they've not even noticed it. They should at least have noticed and spoken about it. Schweitzer only reproaches philosophers on the one point. Quote, in the last resort, Philosophy is the guide and the guardian of reason in general. Philosophy's duty was therefore to concede that the ideals of ethical reason no longer find their basis in a complete view of the world, but that these ideals now stand alone and will have to assert themselves in the world only through their own inherent strength. Close quote, Steiner again. And then he closes the first chapter by saying, quote, Philosophy has concerned itself so little with civilization that it didn't even notice how philosophy itself and civilization with it were becoming more and more Philistine. In the hour of danger, the watchman who should have sounded the alarm was asleep. This is how it came about that we didn't fight for our culture. Close quote. Steiner again. Now, I ask you not to take Schweitzer's words in the wrong way and say that they are true for German culture, but not for England, not for America, and least of all, of course, for France. Schweitzer wrote a large number of books, and some of them were written in English, titled The Mystery of the Kingdom of God, then titled The Quest of the Historical Jesus. There is even a third. And he wrote several even in French. This man is really international, and is certainly not only speaking about German culture, but about contemporary culture. Therefore, it wouldn't be right if what we saw in Berlin recently would be the attitude we take toward his observations. We were having an anthroposophical meeting and there was one member present who had a dog. Now, I have often explained that humans go through repeated earthly lives, reincarnations, but that animals do not, as they have group spirits, which are in the same stage, not the single individual animal. This person loved their dog so much that even though they admitted that other animals, even other dogs, don't have repeated earthly lives, their dog, however, did have them. They knew this for certain. There was some discussion about this. Discussion can be enlivening, as you know. And you can imagine that this person couldn't be convinced, but that the others were quite sure. This became clear as we sat in the coffee shop afterward. Another member 
said how silly it was of the person with the dog to think it would be reincarnated. This is obviously not possible. We can see this from anthroposophy in general. But of course, if it had been their own parrot, that would be different. I don't want to use this argument in the case of various nationalities, so that you say, this is true of those people that Albert Schweitzer is talking about, their culture is in decline, and even their philosophers don't notice it, but our parrot will be reincarnated. In the second chapter, Schweitzer talks about, quote, circumstances in our economic and intellectual life which inhibit culture, close quote. And here, too, his thinking is remarkably clear. Sometimes he writes something trivial or some remarks which are quite obvious. But then Schweitzer reveals one of the deficits of the modern human being, this uncultured modern person, and that he sees how having lost culture, they have become on the one hand unfree, and on the other they are unconcentrated. Now, I've read some sentences of Max Rubner to you. They don't exactly show concentrated thinking. Unconcentrated is precisely the right description of the contemporary human being. Then Schweitzer describes this modern person quite astutely. Apart from being unfree and unconcentrated, they are also, in quotes, incomplete. Now just imagine, all these modern people think that they walk around in the world in a state of completeness. But Albert Schweitzer considers that through modern education, each person is channeled into a narrow professional life which only develops their talents in a one-sided manner and lets the rest wither away so that they become, in effect, incomplete human beings. And also in this unfree, incomplete, and unconcentrated modern person, there exists a certain inhumanity. Quote, in fact, for two generations now, thoughts of a consummate inhumanity are at large among us. In the ugly immediacy of language and with the authority of logical principles, the mentality of society has developed in such a way that it diverts people from humanitarianism. The courtesy of natural sensibility is disappearing. Quote. I just want to remind you of the general assembly we had here, where there was much talk of courtesy. Quote, Instead, we have a kind of behavior of complete indifference. Acting towards strangers with deliberate aloofness and apathy is regarded not as inner coarseness, but as urbane behavior. Also, our society has ceased to recognize the dignity and value of each individual human being. Some human beings have become for us just human material, human resources. And if now it has become increasingly possible to speak airily of war and conquest, as if they were just moves on a chessboard, then this is because of the general attitude in society at large, which no longer sees the fate of individual human beings, but only regards them as ciphers and objects. As war broke out, the inhumanity that was already in us was given free rein. And in the last decade, what sheer and coarse brutality with regard to colored people has found its way into our colonial literature and our parliaments as reasonable argument and has crossed over into public opinion. Twenty years ago, from the rostrum of a parliament on the European continent, it was said of deported black people who had been left to die of hunger and disease that they, in quotes, perished. 
as if they were speaking of animals. Close quote. Now, Albert Schweitzer discusses the role of over-organization in the decline of our culture, the over-organization which prevails everywhere in public life, acts as a cultural inhibitor. These days, organizational regulations, laws and provisions are being put in place everywhere. Whatever you do, you have to belong to an organization. People accept this without thinking. They act thoughtlessly. They're always organized in some way. So that Schweitzer finds that this over-organization, in quotes, has had a thoroughly constraining effect on culture. Quote, the terrible truth that with the advance of history and economic development, culture becomes not easier but more difficult has never been said. The bankruptcy of national culture, which becomes increasingly obvious from decade to decade, is destroying the modern human being. The demoralization of the individual by the collective is well underway. An unfree, unconcentrated, and incomplete human being, disoriented in their loss of humanity, delegating their intellectual independence and their moral judgment to organized society, and trapped in every respect in contemporary cultural attitudes. The shadow human being goes his shadowy way in shadowy times. Philosophy had no understanding of the danger humanity was in, and so it could not come to its aid. Philosophy didn't even encourage public debate about what was happening. Close quote, Steiner again. In the third chapter, Albert Schweitzer says that a real civilization must be grounded in ethics. Earlier worldviews gave birth to ethical values, but since the middle of the 19th century, society continued to live with these ethical values without grounding them in a complete worldview, and they didn't even notice it. Quote, they lived in the situation born out of an ethical culture without waking up to the fact that it had become unsustainable and without looking at what was developing in and between nations. So, thoughtless as we are, contemporary humanity came to the conclusion that civilization primarily consisted of scientific technical and artistic achievements, and could well manage without or at least with only a minimum of ethics. This externalized version of civilization was further authorized in public opinion by the fact that well-known figures whose position and scientific education would lead one to believe they had a certain intellectual competence supported it. Our sense of reality consists of moving from one fact to the next, based either on our passions or on our balance sheets. As we have no clear intention as to what we're trying to accomplish, our activities fall into the category of natural phenomena. Close quote. Steiner again. And Schweitzer sees with great clarity that because they had no creative cultural life, people turned to nationalism. Quote, it was symptomatic of the pathological state of nationalistic realpolitik that it always sought to embellish itself with ideals. The struggle for power became a struggle for rights and for culture. Nations formed egoistic interest groups with each other and presented these as friendships and natural kinship and predated all this to an earlier time, even though history attested more to age-old animosity than to inner affinity. 
and in the end it wasn't enough for nationalism to suspend any aspiration to developing a culture of humanity. It destroyed the whole idea of culture itself by proclaiming, in quotes, national culture. Close quote. Steiner again. So you see, Schweitzer has a clear vision in various areas of life, and he finds the words to express this negative aspect of our times. It's quite clear to him how science has affected contemporary life. Since he's quite aware that no one in our time is capable of thinking, I showed you this with the example of Max Rubner, he also knows that science itself has become thoughtless and therefore can't be in a position to lead humanity in a cultural sense. Quote, Today there is no thinking in science, since it has become indifferent to thinking. Progressive knowledge goes hand in hand with the most thoughtless worldview. It claims to consist just of single statements, as only these can be guaranteed in objective science. Putting the findings into context and evaluating the consequences for a worldview is not the task of science. In the past, each scientist was also a thinker of importance in the life of the mind of their generation. Our age has arrived at a differentiation between science and thinking. This is why we have perhaps freedom in science, but almost no more thinking in science. Close quote, Steiner again. Schweitzer sees the negative side extremely clearly, and he knows how to express the important point, which is that we must bring spirit back into culture. He knows that culture has excluded the spirit. This morning in the lecture on education, I discussed how from what humanity once knew of the soul, only the words are left. People still speak of the soul, but they don't associate anything real with the word. And it's just the same with the spirit. There is no awareness of spirit. There is only the word. When someone so astutely characterizes the negative side of modern civilization, then as nobody knows anything of the spirit anymore, they can at the most, drawing on certain traditions, say we need the spiritual. But if they had to say how spirit should be brought back into culture, then it would be like this story that I personally experienced. As a young boy, I lived near a village where one day one of the grandest of the village dignities had his hens stolen. This went to trial, and the judge wanted to evaluate how high the punishment should be, and therefore wanted to get an idea of what kind of hens they were. And so he asked this village dignitary to describe the hens, quote, Yes, Your Honor, they were lovely hens, close quote. Quote, But I need to know what kind of hens they were, they were your hens, you must know what kind they were. Describe them in more detail for me, will you? Close quote. Quote, yes, your honor, they were just lovely hens. Close quote. And so it went on. They couldn't get any more out of him than, quote, they were just lovely hens. Close quote. In the next chapters, Albert Schweitzer wants to be more positive and to describe more exactly what he means by a total worldview of philosophy. Quote, what kind of worldview would be a thoughtful one into which cultural ideas and high-mindedness were integrated, optimistic and ethical, close quote, they were just lovely hens. It would have to be optimistic and ethical. Yes, but what exactly? Just think if an architect were going to build someone a house and wants to know what kind of house the person wants, and they only answered, the house has to be stable, weatherproof, 
and a good place to live. Now make a plan for the house on this basis. But it's just the same as when someone says a worldview should be optimistic and ethical. If you want to build a house, you have to make a plan, and it has to be a practical plan. But Albert Schweitzer, who is such an astute thinker, doesn't know what to say, other than that they were lovely hens, or that the house should be fine, namely optimistic and ethical. He does actually expand a little on that, but not much else emerges apart from the lovely hens. For example, he says that as thinking has become unfashionable, nobody can think anymore, and even the philosophers haven't noticed that there's no longer any thinking, and believe that they can still think. This is why many people turn to mysticism, which works without thinking, which tries to achieve a world view without thinking. Now, he says, why shouldn't we approach mysticism with thinking? So, now the coming worldview should be mysticism combined with thinking. But how is this supposed to work? The house should be stable, weatherproof, and beautiful, and built so that we can live in it. Our worldview has to be able to combine mysticism and thinking. But this is just more of the same. Nowhere is there any real substance, not even the tiniest suggestion. Now, how does anthroposophy differ from this kind of cultural critique? As far as the negative aspects are concerned, we can go along with them, but is anthroposophy satisfied with this description of the house, stable, weatherproof, beautiful, and built to live comfortably in? No. Anthroposophy devises plans for the house, designs, in fact, a concept for civilization. However, Albert Schweitzer resists this idea and says, The great change in the ideals and convictions that we live in and for can't be brought about by trying to convince people of better ideas than they themselves have. It will only happen when many people start to think about the meaning of life. So it's not possible to convince people of better ideas than those they already have. What does Schweitzer think we should do? He exhorts people to engage in serious soul-searching and to develop what's necessary out of themselves, so that nobody else needs to convince them of ideas that they don't already have. However, it's exactly because people searched their souls for what they already had that we arrived at the point described at the beginning. Quote, Our times are characterized by the decline of civilization. Close quote. Quote, there is no reflecting on culture, and in fact we've abandoned it altogether. Close quote. And so on. And all this has happened, and here Schweitzer's thinking is astute and right on the mark, because humanity has neglected to make plans for the house. And now he says that it's not possible for them to absorb anything new. They have to search their own souls. Now, you see that it's not only Max Rubner who can't cope with thinking, but even such a terribly clever thinker as Albert Schweitzer isn't capable of moving on from a negative critique of our civilization to recognizing that culture must be enriched by a renewal of spiritual life. Anthroposophy has existed here for the same length of time, since 1900, according to his own report, as Schweitzer has been working on his book. But he hasn't noticed that anthroposophy offers a positive perspective on what he can only negatively criticize, bringing spirit into culture. 
He even gets a little jocular at the end of the last part, quote, It's valuable in itself to think about the meaning of life. If we start to think about this again, then all the ideals of vanity and passion that have proliferated like weeds among the population will just wither away. How much could be gained if we all took three minutes each evening and looked up in contemplation to the infinite worlds of the starry skies? Close quote. Steiner again. Thus, he means it would be good for people if they, they took three minutes each evening and looked up to the heavens. If you say it like that, people certainly wouldn't do it. But look at how it's described in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds. It's difficult to understand why he's not able to take the step from the negative to the positive. Quote, and if, when attending a funeral, we thought about the riddles of life and death instead of idly chatting away as we follow the coffin, close quote, so you see, if you're only negative, then you have to conclude such a study of cultural decadence as follows, quote, Previous thinking aimed at understanding the meaning of life by understanding the meaning of the world. But it's possible that we have to leave the question of the meaning of life aside and try to give our life meaning through our will to live as it exists in us. Even if the paths leading to our goal are still in shadow, the direction we have to take is clear. Close quote Steiner again. As clear as is the fact that they're lovely hens, and as clear as are the plans for the stable, weatherproof, beautiful house. Most modern human beings regard it as clear when they just describe something, and they don't notice how it's really completely unclear. Quote, Together we have to reflect on the meaning of life. Together we have to struggle to find a broad and life-affirming worldview in which the need to act, which we experience as necessary and valuable, can find its justification, orientation, clarification, intensification, moral vindication, and strength. Quote. The house should be beautiful, stable, weatherproof, and we should be able to live comfortably in it. The, the equivalent of this description of the house is that of the worldview which should provide our actions with justification, etc., quote, and would thus be able to establish and realize definitive cultural ideals in the spirit of true humanitarianism, close quote. So, there we have it. With regard to the negative, he shows astute and commendable thinking, but a complete inability to recognize anything positive. For those people who are today worthy of our praise, and Albert Schweitzer is one of the most praiseworthy, this is their situation. This is something anthroposophists should be clearly aware of, so that they recognize those people who are philosophers in the sense of this sharp-witted Albert Schweitzer, and who, for example, call themselves, in quotes, neo-Kantians, and have not only forgotten how to think, but indeed haven't even noticed that they've forgotten. You can't expect such a person to understand anthroposophy. But we should keep a wary eye on these people, who Schweitzer rightly described as the slumbering philosophers of the 19th and 20th century, and on how they speak about anthroposophy. In present times, we have to keep our eyes open warily in all directions. For example, one news item reports how little Bergson has held up against Kant. 
But then they say that the wild speculations of Steiner and his great spiritual tirades hold up even less when put to the test of Kant's epistemology. Steiner, too, believes that he can attain a knowledge beyond that of Kant and the Neo-Kantians. In fact, he lags far behind them, and as one can see from his writings, has completely misunderstood some of the crucial points. This is then broadcast without any further explanation in widely read newspapers. And then someone who thinks in this way, who isn't even able to think as well as Rubner, asserts that you only need to turn to modern science, then you'll know what this so-called knowledge of Steiner's is worth. He calls it, in quotes, brain bubbles. We have to pay attention to such things and not just let them pass us by. Because this thoughtless science, as Albert Schweitzer calls it, wields power in the world, at least for the time being, many people say that we should be guided by justice and not by power but then they mistake their own power for justice. I will spare you any more of the nonsense that this author writes as he then goes into spiritism and how science should examine these phenomena, etc. But when the poor students turn to anthroposophy and absorb these brain bubbles, then Max Rubner gives them the following advice. Quote, it's always very refreshing to start work on a new unplowed field of the brain, close quote, some fields have been ploughed again and again. So, when the brain bubbles of anthroposophy start to rise up before these poor students, and they then start to plough the fields of the brain, then the bubbles will surely be vanquished by the ploughshare. However, in, in one point they are right. The best minds of our times have characterized modern civilization as decadent and in decline. But insofar as they are part of contemporary cultural life, they are incapable of recognizing the positive aspects. They are stuck in the stage where, when they are supposed to say what the house should be like, instead of taking up a pen or modeling clay, as does anthroposophy, they still just say that the house should be beautiful, stable, weatherproof, and made for comfortable living. That's for the house. For a worldview, they say it should be optimistic, ethical, should provide us with an orientation, and so on. You can see how necessary it is to go a bit further than what is happening in modern civilization. This is why I've given you these episodic observations today. Next Friday we'll speak further about this, and not in the sense of the house should be beautiful, stable, and weatherproof, or the worldview should be optimistic, ethical, and provide us with an orientation, and so on. We will go into real anthroposophy, into the spiritual life that our civilization so badly needs. The end of Lecture 3